Good evening, everyone. So um, I wanted to start tonight by telling you a story that a while ago when I was a student, so back when I was doing my undergrad, I got really into playing squash. So I don't know, is anyone here a fan of playing squash? Have we got any squash players yet? <laughs> yeah, there's a few. Great, so um, one of my friends invited me to go along and play squash for the first time when I was a student, and I absolutely loved it. And I went from having never played squash before to playing squash probably about four or five times a week. Like, I really got into it. And I also went and I joined the uh, university squash club. Um, I really enjoyed going along, training with them. And at one point, I even got to um, be part of one of the ladies' uh, squash teams as well as being eventually I actually became one of the captains of the ladies second team which actually sounds a lot more impressive than it actually is I promise you um, so as I was talking about this with, my, with some of my friends you know they were under the impression that I was quite good at squash and you know I was quite happy to let them think that um, and so I didn't really say a lot to, to, to tell them otherwise. In fact, I kind of played up to it. And so when they, people would ask me, when I'd meet people and we'd be talking about squash, and they'd ask, oh, are you, are you good at squash? I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm quite good at squash. And eventually what happened, one of my friends introduced me to one of their friends, who said, and they said about him that he was the best squash player that they knew. And so I got invited to go and play squash uh, with this guy. And, and so he was speaking to me, and he, and he said to me, so are you good? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, we should play and I was all like well okay but as long as you don't mind being beat by a girl uh, you know that was the kind of thing that I said at that time not anymore uh, isn't that right John Bork um anyway <laughs> so what happened was we went to uh, play squash and actually within minutes of being on the squash court with this guy just while we were warming up I quickly realized that I was in way over my head and that there was no way that I was going to win this match but actually what happened next was really funny um, I ended up I won the first game against this guy uh, which I was absolutely over the moon about and um, although it did turn out it was probably mostly due to his unforced errors and also the fact that he had a low blood sugar because after the first game he ran off the squash court down to the vending machines grabbed like two bars of chocolates and energy drink down the lot and came back and absolutely thrashed me so I didn't get a look in after that and we never played again surprise surprise so before that match, I talked the talk, but the reality was that I couldn't walk the walk. I couldn't live up to the promises and the impression that I'd given him that I was good at squash. His skills just far outweighed mine. But as a Christian and as a follower of Jesus, it's important that our words need to be backed up by action. You know, we need to be able to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. And that's what I want to look at in today's passage. That's the title of my message, To Walk the Walk. And we're continuing in our series through the book of Mark today, and we come to the book of Mark chapter 8, 31 to chapter 9, verse 1. You can turn there in your Bibles just now, but it's also going to come up um, on the screen behind me. And this passage, it follows straight on from Peter's revelation that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. So, is the Messiah. so in other words, Peter has just become a believer. He's declared Jesus is the Christ. But to recognize Jesus as Christ, to recognize Jesus as Lord in our lives, actually has consequences in our lives. Consequences that require action. It's not simply enough to talk about it. It's not simply enough to proclaim it. But we have to work that out in our lives. And now we come to this passage. This passage is a tough and challenging part of the disciples' journey with Jesus. As Jesus begins to unpack with the disciples the revelation that Peter's had about what it means to, for Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, but then also what it means for the disciples. 
So we're going to read together. Why don't you turn in your Bibles? Or I'll just turn to in mine. Okay. So reading from chapter 8, verse 31. It says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some, of, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So this is a tough passage. And so following this moment of revelation that Peter's had, everything now begins to change. And Jesus is able to start to speak clearly to his disciples. There's no more parables. There's no more hidden messages. But he speaks plainly. He begins to teach and unpack what must happen to him, what must happen to the Messiah, in order that the disciples can be prepared. And I want to start as we... um, talk about what it means to walk the walk. I want to first talk about what it meant for the Messiah. I want to first start by talking about the walk of Christ. So Jesus has known from a very young age who he was and what he's called to. You know, we see it recorded in scripture that even as a 12-year-old boy, he was found in the temple courts. In Luke chapter 246, it says that he was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. So in a sense, the walk of Christ begins in this season of preparation and a hunger for the word of God and a hunger and a desire to be with his father God. And that's a habit that we see modeled all the way through the life of Jesus. And I believe that it was in this place that even as a young boy, it was revealed to Jesus what the call on his life was and what he was meant to do and how he was meant to do it. He learned that in that place of intimacy with his father. And I think we can learn from that because it's the same over us as well. You know, as we seek to know what's the Lord's will, what's his purposes over our lives, you know, it comes from that place of being in his presence, of meeting with the Father, of asking him, what is your word? You know, God, what is your word over my life? It's in that place of intimacy. So for Jesus, he knew that he was the Christ, and he knew that his calling was to welcome the kingdom of God. He knew, in Luke 4, it says to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, release the oppressed. And actually, throughout the book of Mark and up to this point, that is what Jesus has been doing. And then we come to this this point. The point is that there's more. And for the first time, Jesus begins to speak about what that means. He begins to speak plainly to his disciples. That in order for him to fully walk out the walk of Christ, the first thing is that he needs to die. So he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and must be killed and after three days rise again. If we look at in this passage, he uses that word must twice. You know, it's a strong word. It leaves no room for negotiation. 
You know, he knows that it's a must. He knows that this is the divine will of his father. You know, he knows the scriptures. He knows the, the, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. You know, that whole chapter that speaks about a suffering Messiah. I'm not going to read it all, but just in verse, from verse 10 in Isaiah 53, it says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord made his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of God will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by, the, by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. You know, that's what was written in Isaiah 53, and Jesus knew that. He was well aware of that. He knows what the will and the word of God is that's been spoken over his life. And now he speaks it plainly to the disciples. He wants them to know. He wants them to get it too. But for Peter, he doesn't get it. You know, Peter, he doesn't understand. You know, he's only just had this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. And he doesn't understand now the things that Jesus is saying to him. He doesn't understand why the Christ must suffer and die. You know, his view of Christ is probably a victorious Christ that's going to rescue them from Roman oppression. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying to him in that moment. And so he speaks strongly to Jesus. He takes Jesus to one side and begins to rebuke him. You know, in that moment, I think that all Peter's hope was in Jesus. And what it sounded like when Jesus said what he said is that, like, almost like Jesus was prepared to throw in the towel. And so Peter's speak, speaking strongly to him. He rebukes him. And, you know, we don't know what Peter said in that moment, but I imagine it went something like, you know, Jesus, what are you playing at? There must be another way. You know, look at the crowds. Look at all the people that are following us. God is clearly with us. Jesus, there must be another way. You know, that's what I think Peter said in that moment. And it's interesting to me as we look at the passage, what happened next. In verse 33, it says, When Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You know, the second thing, in order to walk the walk of Christ, he had to deny himself. And that's what I think is going on in this moment, that Jesus is choosing to deny himself. You know, in this moment, we see a strong reaction from Jesus. You know, it's not just a loving hand on Peter's shoulder to say, you know, Pete, mate, you've, you've got this wrong. Let me explain it to you. You know, he reacts in that moment. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's a strong reaction. And what I think when I read this, there's something in what Peter has said to him that's actually touching on temptation in Jesus. You know, that's what I think. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. And we also know later on in the book of Mark that Jesus really struggled with the burden of having to lay his life down. You know, look at that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then he prays that famous prayer, Abba, Father, everything is possible possible for you. Take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. So I think we have a picture of the fact that Jesus is wrestling with the call on his life. And in this moment, it becomes there's something that Peter said that has landed on Jesus, and he reacts to it. 
But, so let's just picture, I think we need, just need to picture what's going on. You know, it started with Jesus. He was speaking plainly to the disciples. And then we have Peter who takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. But it says in verse 33 that it was as he turned and looked at the disciples that then he rebuked Peter. You know, what was it about him turning and looking at the disciples that caused him to rebuke Peter? You know, this is a significant moment. It's actually as he looks on the disciples, as he looks on his followers, as he looks on his friends, he remembers who this is for. He remembers that there's a bigger plan in play here. That it's not just about his will, but it's about his father's will. And maybe he was tempted. There may be another way. But in that moment, he looks at his disciples and he remembers who it's for. He remembers the plans and the purposes of God. And he reacts get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He was tempted in the same way that we are tempted. The battle of our human concern versus the will of God. It's that flesh versus the spirit at work within us. You know, a battle that we are all, I'm sure, familiar with. But Jesus models what it is to choose the will of the Father and to deny himself and instead to walk in obedience to the call of God on his life for the greater good, for the greater purposes of God. So Jesus chooses to walk the walk of Christ through death, through denying himself, and lastly, to suffer shame. So Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to suffer many things and be rejected by the leaders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law. So in other words, everyone that Jewish society sees as important. He even knows that some of his own followers will even reject him. He knows that he's going to be stripped and beaten and flogged and eventually hung naked on a tree with even his heavenly father turning his back on, back on him in that moment of death. You know, to be hung on the cross and was to be publicly shamed for all to see. He knows what's ahead, but he continues to walk the walk. He continues to submit to the will of the father on his life. So Jesus, knowing that these events are coming close, probably with a new sense of motivation and purpose, what he now does is gathers the crowd as well as the disciples to him. You know, he knows that it won't be long till these things happen, and it won't be long until he goes to be with his heavenly Father, and it won't be long until he has to leave it up to his disciples and his followers to continue the work of the gospel. And he knows it's going to be tough for them. You know, the message of the gospel is offensive to many. You know, it's challenging. It's, it's countercultural. You know, people need to admit their brokenness before they can accept the gospel. It's a whole new way of thinking. And he understands that for the disciples, it's going to be a tough road to walk. And so he wants to be honest with them. He wants to be really upfront with them. And he needs for them to count the cost. So he gathers the crowds as well as the disciples and he begins to spell out what it means to be a true disciple, what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. In other words, what it means to walk the walk as a disciple. And that's what we're going to look at now, the walk of the disciple. So Jesus starts with an invitation. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants, it's an invitation that is open to all. But also, there's a choice. There's a choice that the crowd has to make. No one is forced. No one is forced to become a disciple of Jesus. You have free will. It's up to us to make the decision. But what Jesus is saying, that if you choose to be my disciple, then this is what it's going to mean for you. Firstly, he's going to ask you to die. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is a big statement. I actually think in this statement there's a bit of like a a double entendre, like a a double meaning uh, going on. And firstly, the first is that we can't get away from the fact that Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people in a time that meant that if you were going to challenge the established Roman authority, then the chances are that you could end up um, crucified on a cross. You know, that was the reality of the day in which Jesus was speaking. That was the reality of the crowd in which he was speaking to. You know, the crowd knew what what a cross was. And the cross to them represented death. It was an an image and a tool of cruelty and shame. And all of them would have been used to seeing rebels and, and criminals hanging on the cross. So what Jesus was saying, that if you were to follow him, there was every chance that it could end up costing you your life. You know, there's no guarantee of safety becoming a follower of Jesus. And he's just been really upfront about that. Because he needs people to know that when, he needs people to know so that when he goes, they're going to be strong enough in their faith to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And although it's not necessarily true for us in this country, the reality is there still are Christians in the world today for whom this is true. There are still Christians in the world that in order to be a follower of Jesus, it means that they run the risk of death. You know, there are many that have been forced to pay the ultimate sacrifice for their profession of faith. You know, that is the reality, and and we have to remember that. To many people, this is a real cost. But Jesus also teaches that this sacrifice will not be without its reward. And he teaches that if you are willing to lay down your life for the gospel, you will save your soul and you'll have an eternal reward. So following Jesus is costly. You know, there's no getting away from that. And in order to walk the walk as a disciple, it may end up costing your life. So he speaks this plainly to the followers. And I just wonder for the people in the crowd, for how many people this was kind of the point that they checked out. You know, like, oh no, this, this isn't for me. It's too costly. I'm not willing to die for this guy. You know, they were still free to choose. You know, we are still free to choose. Jesus doesn't force anybody. And so maybe for some in the crowd, this was a moment that they walked away. But the second meaning is also the call to every believer that's actually part of the process of becoming a Christian, becoming a disciple, is that Jesus asks us to die to our old self in order that we can be raised to new life in Christ. That we take up our cross and follow him. It's a willful act. It's a willful act where we choose to put our old selves to death um, in order that we can live in our new life with him put to death the things of the fleshy nature um, in order that we can live in fullness with him. That we actually choose to live a life of obedience and surrender to the call of God on our life and that we prioritize that before anything else. You know, Christ died in order that we could live and that is the truth of the gospel. In Romans 6, 3 to 4, it says, Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? We were baptized into his death. We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. And there's kind of this sort of divine paradox that seems to be going on here. It appears that in one sense Jesus is asking his disciples to die, but actually he's also highlighting what it takes in order to really live. 
verse 35, so whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You know, Christ died so that we could live. And what we need to do is die in our brokenness in order that we can live in his fullness. So the first point, we're called to die. The second point is we're called to deny ourselves. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves. Verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I wonder if anyone here has ever um, been involved in training for a big sporting event, maybe a 10K or a triathlon or a, a marathon, um, something like that. You know, at the moment, I'm trying to, to train for a run that I'm doing. And, you know, it's hard work. <laughs> and sometimes with my shifts, I'll start even like eight in the morning. And if I want to do a run that day, it means that I need to set my alarm at half past five in the morning to get out of bed and um, to get training. And, you know, I'm trying to push myself when I'm going out running. I'm trying to push myself to go a bit faster or a bit longer. But you know what? It's exhausting. Training is exhausting. The truth is, I don't want to get up early. I don't want to get up at half past five in the morning. I just want to hit the alarm off, roll over, and go back to sleep. But the point is, I have a goal that I'm working towards. And as a result of that, I'm prepared to get up early. I'm prepared to try and to train and to strengthen myself in order that I'm ready for this run. So there's the kind of self-denial that's actually about strengthening ourselves, right? And, and in God, I think that's true as well. There's the kind of self-denial that's about strengthening ourselves in God in order that we can carry more power, more responsibility, and more authority in the kingdom of God in a way that it's not going to ruin us. You know, if I was to try and run, for example, a half marathon or a marathon without any training, you know, I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get injured. It's not going to be a pleasant experience. You know, the training and that self-denial is necessary. And I believe that in God, he almost has like kingdom marathons for his disciples to run, but he needs us to be men and women willing to say that I'm going to deny myself this worldly thing in order to carry this kingdom thing. And I think that's the kind of people that God's looking for. And then secondly, there's another kind of denial, um, of self-denial, and that's about avoiding temptations. It's about avoiding the things that the enemy wants to put in our way to trip us up. And the enemy knows. He knows the areas of weaknesses in our life. He knows the areas to target. Now, the process of temptation, I'm sure we're all familiar with. Anyone who's trying to eat healthy or, or be on a diet knows the process of temptation. So let's just talk about that. So for example, at work, often we have people who bring in a box of chocolates. I don't know if it's like this where you work. Um, and, and what they'll do is they'll bring in these delicious chocolates and then they'll place them on a table on some public table or public space that's, that's really inviting you to come and eat me, basically. And so you'll go into work and then you'll see the chocolates and you'll think, oh, no, I'm not going to eat it. I'm, gonna, I'm, try, I'm trying to be healthy. And you'll walk past. And in that moment, you'll be like, yes, um, I've, I've defeated temptation except it doesn't end there, does it? You know, you continue with your day or, or you go back to your desk and you start to think again about those chocolates. The thought crosses your mind and you think, oh, oh, I could just have one. Oh, one, one would be fine, they're tiny. And, and, and then there's this battle inside your head. You're like, no, 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 I don't need it. And then you're like, oh, but just, and, and you kind of go back and forth in your head. So eventually you can't get any work done because you can't concentrate. So you decide to go back and you take a chocolate. And, and that's it, you take it, and then, and then what happens next? Now you've tasted it, now you know how good it tastes. 
and you think, well, I've ruined today anyway, so I might as well have another one. Oh, I'll start my diet again tomorrow. You know, this is how it works, isn't it? And before you know it, you're feeling sick because you've eaten too many chocolates. You know, this is the process of temptation. But for us in our lives, maybe we want to remove chocolates and replace it with something else. You know, what is the thing that we're struggling with in our lives? What are the temptations? What are the areas the enemy is coming and trying to trip us up in? But Jesus, he's our example. And in the moment of temptation, we see that he chooses to put the concerns of God above human concerns. You know, we need to invite the Holy Spirit to come into our battles to help us overcome. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can endure it. You know, we don't get tempted more than we can bear. But there's a sense that we need to respond. We need to, to be willful in, in, in coming against temptation. You know, God gives us what we need, but we still need to choose to walk away from temptation. We still need to choose to put the things of God before that thing that's tempting us in that moment. And it's not that God's there with a big stick wanting to beat us up when we kind of get it wrong, but actually it's because he wants the best for us. It's because he wants us to be the best versions of ourselves in order that we can represent him well to the world around us and in order that we can be trusted with his power. Finally, the third thing in the walk of the disciple is also to suffer shame. The passage calls us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Verse 38 says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes. I mean, that's a strong statement. But for us, we have to remember the sacrifice that Christ gave for us. That he willfully gave himself over to be beaten, to be shamed, to suffer, and to be nailed to a cross. You know, the gift that he gave us cost him everything. And if we're to be his true followers, we can't be ashamed of that in any way. You know, if we are, it's almost like rejecting the gift that he's given us. And you know, shame can be such a powerful weapon that the enemy uses us to silence our witnessing. You know, there is something within us that we, we crave kind of um, to be accepted by other people, don't we? But Jesus calls us out. He says, beware. If you want to be my disciples, you'll have to suffer shame for the sake of my name. Because that's what it's going to be, to be countercultural. You know, the kingdom message is so often opposed to the message of the world. And as a result, it can be offensive to people. An example of this, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, that is a statement that can be seen as offensive to people. But we can't be ashamed of it because people disagree with it. We need to stand strong in the truths of Scripture in order that the world doesn't water our faith down. Okay, so, yeah, prepare to suffer shame for the sake of the, the truth of the gospel. And, you know, for Peter, this message sinks in for him. It sinks in eventually. So we'll just brush over the part of the story where, G where Peter denies Christ. Uh, and we'll just move on to in the book of Acts. And um, this is where Peter and the, and the apostles, um, in chapter 5, they're brought before the high priest in the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. And this leads them to get flogged. And it says that they stood with boldness in the, first, in the face of persecution and shame. 
And then as they left, they went on their way, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know, Peter was actually able to find joy in his suffering shame for the sake of the gospel. And I believe that's what it looks like when the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. You know, that's the fruit of living life by the, by the Spirit. You know, God doesn't leave us to do it in our own strength. He's with us. He's with us in the, that, those moments where our colleagues or our friends or, or whoever maybe want to make us feel ashamed. You know, Christ is with us in those moments. Okay, so Christ invites us that as we are his disciples, as we walk the walk, as we walk the walk, he invites us to die, to deny ourselves, and to suffer shame. Now, if we just take a minute to look at that list, it is a costly list. It's a costly list, and I think Jesus wants us to count the cost. But if we go to the next slide, why don't we compare the walk of the disciple with the walk of Christ? we can see that those lists are the same because Christ actually doesn't ask us to do anything that he wasn't first prepared to do for us. And you know, isn't that the mark of a great leader? Someone who doesn't ask his followers to do anything that he's not first willing to do himself. You know, he did it first for us. He did it first for the love of us. And then he gives us the choice. Do you want to be my disciple? It's costly. Here's what it's going to cost. But he's inviting us to be part of something that's much bigger than us. And just as we finish, I just want to finish really quickly with this final thought. In chapter 9, verse 1, it kind of seems like this add-on to the passage. It says, um, and then he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. The thing that troubled me with this passage was why does it say only some who are standing here will see the kingdom of God in power? Because I thought actually surely it's not far away, the point where Jesus is going to die and, 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 and resurrect. You know, they're going to hear about it. Surely they're going to see, see it. But as I was kind of praying over this, I think the point, the point is that only some who listened to this message of Jesus were actually willing to count the cost. You know, many would have fallen away as they listened to this tough message because the cost was too great. And I think the truth of this passage is that it's only those who are willing to count the cost, only those who are willing to follow Christ into true discipleships, the ones willing to do more than simply talk the talk, but who are also willing to walk the walk. They're the ones who are going to be able to see the kingdom of God come with power.